All right, go ahead and open up to Ephesians chapter 4. We are coming to a turning point in the book of Ephesians. So the first three chapters have been Paul encouraging the church to be united, to celebrate that God has, through the redeeming work of Jesus, invited the nations to be a part of God's family. And now all the nations are, are brought together as this one new humanity in Christ being built together into the very temple of God, the dwelling place of God through the Spirit. And so Paul passionately prays that we would be able to comprehend just how much Jesus loves us in light of all of this. So now we come to chapter 4, and Paul turns from telling us about the good news to now telling us the implications that this good news has in our lives. But I want to encourage you, don't simply think about chapters 1 through 3 as, okay, this is what God has done, and now chapters 4 through 6 is what we ought to do, okay? Uh, don't think about it like that. Instead, look at chapters 4 through 6 as more like Paul and his vision for this new humanity of what the church could be. Because he knows we all fall short of this ideal. In fact, as we walk through this, I think you're going to be able to see that Paul recognizes that life in community is not easy. That having the Holy Spirit indwell us doesn't just immediately make us like Jesus and make us morally perfect. Okay, And so Paul writes to encourage the church to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. And I think it's wise for us to remember that Paul has this category in his head that it's me, but it's not me. Okay? That when it, when it comes to working and to be, being obedient to God, to becoming more like Christ, it's me, but it's not me. So, for example, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10. We're going to put this up on the, on the screen. He writes this. This is Paul. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. Okay, so it's, he's saying that it's by the gift of God that I am what I am, that his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. So again, I worked harder than any of them, but you know what? It, it wasn't really me. It's God's grace working in me. So Paul's got that category. Let's pray one more time that God would grant us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling in which we've been called to. Oh, Father, as we dive into this word, I plead with you that you would open our spiritual eyes to see your glory, to be amazed by the design of your body, your church, and the gift that we have to be a part of it, just to be a small member, to be a small part of what you have created to, to be the means by which the world would come to know you. We get to be a part of that. Father, I pray that we'd be blown away by that, and I pray that you would help us to, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that you've given us, Lord. Apart from you, we, we can't do that. And so we plead that through your Spirit, you would help us to understand, and that you would help us to believe, and that you would help us to live in light of this calling. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so... We're going to walk through this passage slowly, but here's the basic outline, okay? Verses 1 through 6 is Paul's exhortation to unity, okay? So he's 
encouraging the church to be united. And then verses 7 through 16 is all about Christ's diverse gifting to the church to bring this unity about. All right? So that's where we're headed. So starting in verse 1, Paul says this, I therefore, okay, so therefore, based on everything that we've just talked about in the first three chapters, I therefore, reminds you again, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And again, Paul is about to imagine a world in which we believe chapters 1 through 3 are actually true. Notice Paul reminds them that he is a prisoner, that he's in a prison cell as he's writing this letter to them, which tells us, first of all, that walking in a manner worthy of our calling doesn't mean that things will always go easy for us. It doesn't mean that we will be highly esteemed by the world. In fact, sometimes walking in a manner of our, worthy of our calling will cause us to be ridiculed by the world and even persecuted. And it's crazy to think that that Paul used to be on the other side of the prison cell, right? That he was the guy that was searching out followers of Jesus and dragging them into the prison. But now he is proud to be called a prisoner of Christ. And it's from this prison cell, he's urging the church to live in light of their calling. So this is the same calling that he had mentioned in his prayer in chapter 1. Paul prayed that the eyes of their hearts would be open to know the hope of their calling. That they would, the Gentiles specifically, have been called to be part of God's people, God's family. And so this is a calling that I think Peter puts it really, really well, very eloquently. He says this, he says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, that we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. All right, so what does this look like? Just on the street level. Well, Paul begins with a list of character traits. This is a, the character of the new humanity. Look at verse 2. It says, With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit, in the bond of peace. Okay, so there's five character traits that he lists here. I think it's significant that Paul says, in light of the gospel, in light of everything that we've talked about, the first thing that he mentions, he goes back to unity. Okay? And he shows us, okay, this is the character that brings unity. Humility, gentleness, patience, an enduring love, an eager desire for peace. Notice that all of these character traits are communal. In nature. None of these you can do by yourself. Okay? Not, you can't exercise any of these traits in isolation. Paul expects Christians to live in community. And I think that's significant. Um, what we do here on Sunday mornings is really important. Okay? I don't want to downplay that. But at the end of the day, what Paul describes is not just simply us sitting in rows listening to somebody speak. There's relationship that's there. And that happens when we turn to one another, when we face one another, when we eat a fellowship meal together, we pray for one another, and we get into each other's lives, and we have ladies' nights, and, and fun guys' activities, and, and mission, missional communities, or, or fellowship on Wednesdays. I mean, 
that's when we get to be the church. So humility and gentleness. Let's take a look at some of these. So they're, they're paired together. Humility is the opposite of being proud, or sometimes you see in the Bible the word haughty. Paul, in, a few, or in Philippians chapter 2, says it this way. He says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each one of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. And so humility is what allows us to think of others first. Empathy, compassion flow from humility. Paul goes on in Philippians to point to Christ. He says this in verse 5. Have this mind, this mind of humility, among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so, you think about Jesus' earthly ministry, he shows us what this new humanity is meant to be like. And he describes himself in one particular place, he describes his heart in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 and 29, one of my favorite passages. He says this, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So Jesus describes himself as gentle and lowly or humble in heart, which is the reason he gives for people to come to him. He's gentle and lowly in spirit, and that's what makes him approachable. And so Paul is saying that the church should be filled with a community that of approachable people, gentle and humble, that we can come into this place with all of our mess and not feel judged, but instead accepted and loved. So the next two characteristics also go together. Okay, so look at, we've got patience and this idea of enduring love. And it could be translated with patience to bear with one another in love. So it's easy to be humble and it's easy to be gentle when we're by ourselves or we're just simply surrounded by a bunch of people that admire us. But that's simply, that, that's not the real world, is it? That's not the real world. The real world is us here. <laughs> the, the real world is being around difficult people like you and me, right? That's the real world. And so it's almost like Paul knew that the church would be challenging to be in as a community. And so the word to bear here can also be translated as endure. It means here to patiently tolerate someone who is difficult or foolish is the sense of it. And notice the motivation to patiently bear with one another. It's love. Because this is what love does, right? Think about this. Paul, in his famous passage on love, 1 Corinthians 13. <laughs> You're right, Sam. Think about 1 Corinthians 13. This, this is the passage that gets read in numerous 
weddings, right? And it begins by saying that love is patient and love is kind. And then later on he says that love bears all things and he endures all things. So love is, is, is not simply a fond affection. I'll give you guys a minute to get out of here. of the church. What a great illustration right there. So going back to 1 Corinthians, okay? Again, 1 Corinthians is not a description of romantic love between two people, okay? That's how we often look at this. It's an ex What Paul's describing here is the love between church members. And he says what? Love bears all things, endures all things. And so again, it's not simply a fond affection or feeling towards someone in Paul's eyes. It's a loyalty. It's faithfulness. It's commitment. And in Colossians 3, there, there's a parallel passage to this passage in Ephesians, where Paul writes, Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. So often what bearing with one another looks like is us forgiving those who have wronged us because we recognize how much we have been forgiven. Bearing with one another means you, you don't hold on to grudges, but you seek out reconciliation. And that brings us to the fifth, fifth character trait, eager for peace, right? I think all these character traits are leading to this one, and this is what, where Paul spends a majority of his time. The church is to be zealous, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The Spirit of God that is given to us is a unified Spirit. It's a Spirit that bonds us together, bonds us all sorts of different people, bonded together because of the Spirit of Christ. And next we see reason, we see reasons for this eager desire for peace. And I want you to count them with me. Okay? Look at verse 4. Okay, so why are we unified? Because there is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Seven, which is a significant number to a, somebody who is raised in a Hebrew home, right? Paul is communicating that there is a perfect or a complete oneness in the new humanity because there's one body. He will later uh, say that there are many parts or members that make up this body, but there's one body, one universal church. And so Mercy Hill is simply 
an expression of the universal church. He goes on to say there's one spirit. We're not given multiple spirits to guide us. We're given the one and only Holy Spirit. We're called the one hope that belongs to your call, right? Which we've talked about earlier. We, we have been called and adopted into God's family, a royal priest to the holy nation, to be witnesses of Jesus Christ. We share in this identity. We've got one Lord, Jesus Christ, one faith, because there's only one object of our faith, Jesus Christ, one baptism, one unifying symbol of our union with Christ, one cleansing of our sins by Christ. No matter where you are from or what your background is, we are all baptized into one body. Verse 6, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So, you gotta think of his context, right? And so he's talking to these Gentiles that have grown up with these pagan gods, plural, small g gods, and so opposed, opposed to the numerous other small g gods that they had been worshiping. We have one God that unites us. One ultimate creator God. And I can imagine this last one just kind of rolled off Paul's lips, being raised again as a Jew, the Shema. Deuteronomy chapter 6 would have been recited often in his family, which says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Do you think that perhaps Paul spends so much time on unity because he knows just how difficult it is to maintain? Living in a fallen world, I... As fallen creatures, we're, we're prone to division. I don't think I need to spend much time convincing you how divided our world is. Paul spends so much time talking about unity because he knows how difficult it is for us in this world we live in to stay united. You start reading the, the New Testament and almost in every one of Paul's letters and the other letters, they're talking about being unified and being united. It was a challenge back then. It's a challenge today, too. Now, next, Paul encourages the church by telling us that, you know what? God has not left us to our own divisive and destructive ways. Not only do we have good reason to be united, God has gifted leaders within the church to help teach us and unite us in love. Look at verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, there's a little bit of a wordplay going on here. So Paul has just seven times said, we are one. We are united. But here, now, Paul says, grace has been given to each one. So we're united, we're unified, but we are not uniform. Okay? So the church has been given a diverse set of giftings to build one another up, and to unify the body. So next, Paul paraphrases a passage from Psalm 68, which at first glance is like, okay, what is going on here? What is going on? Like, this is confusing. It seems strange, maybe even out of place. But here's what I found. The strange stuff in the Bible is often the most important stuff. And you gotta, you got to dig down, you got to study it, but it's worth the effort to study, to ask the question, okay, why is this here? And so look at verse 8. Therefore it says, 
When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Verse 9, in saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. All right, so there's a lot of debate on what this means, and I'm going to do my best to kind of explain it and summarize it in a short manner. So Paul is saying Christ has given gifts to his church, much like a king who has won a victory and given the spoils of the victory to his people. Okay? So if you go back to Psalm 68, which we don't have time to walk through, it would be that, that maybe Wednesday we'll take a deeper look into this. This would be a good conversation piece on Wednesday. But Psalm 68 is about God ascending on high after winning a great victory. His enemies have fleed and the spoils are being divided. That's Psalm 68. And so what Paul is saying here in Ephesians is that Psalm 68, like the rest of the Old Testament, is pointing to Christ. That Christ is the one who descended into the grave, winning the victory over death and the, the dark spiritual powers that Paul has been talking about. Then he rises from the grave, ascending far above the heavens so that he might fill all things. And so in his victory, he divides the spoils. He gives gifts to the church so that they can fulfill their calling. Specifically, Paul mentions that the gifts are actually people. So look at verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. So Paul in the last chapter has already described his calling as an apostle, as a gift from God. Now here, along with the apostles... Paul lists prophets and evangelists, shepherds, and teachers as leaders within the church, gifts given to the church. And, and this is not a comprehensive list by any means. There are, these are simply some examples. He's trying to make a point. God has given us leaders in, as, a, as a gift. And so let's talk about this list. So first, an apostle was an ambassador for Christ, a messenger commissioned to bring Christ's message to others. They were appointed personally by Jesus. They were witnesses of the risen Jesus, and their ministry was authenticated by miracles and signs and wonders. That's an apostle. A prophet was someone who spoke for God. So the major question that uh, every commentary that you read on this passage is going to try to answer is are there apostles and prophets still today and so i would argue that scripture teaches that the office of apostle and prophet no longer exists okay that doesn't mean that there, there's not some form of prophecy still today or that there that god can do god can still do miracles uh, what I do here on a Sunday morning is a form of prophecy, speaking the word of God and explaining it. But the office of apostle and the office of prophet, I believe, was meant for the first century. And I think you can argue that simply from some passages in Ephesians. So Paul's mentioned apostles and prophets a couple times already, back in chapter 2 and in chapter 3. And he talks about them as being the foundation of the church. So chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. 
but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. He's talking to the Gentiles, okay? You've been invited in. And you've been built on what? The foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstones. And then in chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, we read this. When you read this, you can perceive my insights into the mystery of Christ, right? What was the mystery of Christ? The Gentiles had been brought into the family of God, which was not made known. So this, this mystery was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his, what? Holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. And so I think it makes sense that because of this, that the, their work was unique and isolated to the early church. And so if you hear, there's, there's a movement of uh, people who believe that God is reestablishing that office of apostle to bring in the new, or to bring in the end times. Uh, it's, a, it's a growing movement. But I would argue that that, that idea just isn't right. And, and, and this is how, they're called NAR, New um, Apostolic Reformation, okay? And so if you hear that, there's, I don't think there's one in, in uh, Shepherdsville at this point. But what they're teaching is that these new apostles and prophets are to be submitted to. And if you don't submit to them, your prayers won't be heard by God, and you're, you're in sin. And it's, it's a very controlling kind of mentality. And, and it's just not healthy. And so just be aware that these are some of the false teachings that are, that are coming our way. But uh, I strongly believe that the scriptures teach us that that office of, of apostle and prophet was meant specifically for that early church to, get, to build a foundation for the church. And, and, and then what we have after that, we've got evangelists uh, that are like modern day missionaries or church planners. They were gifted people to share uh, the gospel and start up new congregations. So they built on top of the, the foundation that was laid by the apostles and the prophets. And then you've got shepherds and teachers. And you, you may even see in your, your Bible, there might be a footnote there, the word and is not actually there in the original language. And so it could be translated as shepherds who teach. And so shepherds are, are pastors, elders, those who teach and shepherd the flock. Okay, so they continue to build on the foundation that was laid by the prophets and the apostles. All right, so these are the gifts. Notice what the purpose of these gifts were. Look down at verse 12. To equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ until we attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. In other words, these gifts were given to equip or prepare members of the church to serve in ministry and to build up the body of Christ until what? We attain. We attain the unity or the oneness of faith the knowledge of the, the Son of God unto maturity, unto the measure of the stature or the, the maturity of the fullness of the Messiah. And so what's the result of a church that attains this kind of unity and maturity? Verse 14, 
so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. So it's kind of a frightening image if you think about it. <laughs> Paul, Paul describes this scene where a young, immature church is kind of like a ship full of babies that are being blown out to sea in a storm, bouncing around, unable to stand on their own, being carried off. And if you do a study of divisiveness in the New Testament, you're, you're going to see a couple things. Like I said before, one, it's a major theme throughout the New Testament, but also, secondly, often it's caused by false teaching. I, I was kind of surprised to see that. Like I did a, a search on, like, where's... Who all talks about divisiveness? And it's all over the place. And often it's connected to these false teachers and these false prophets. For example, Romans 16, 17 and 18. I appeal to you, Paul says, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites and by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. So in today's world, especially with the technology that we have, we've got the ability to read or listen or even watch both biblical and unbiblical teaching 24-7. Okay? The internet is both wonderful and dangerous. So here Paul is encouraging the church to guard itself from these kinds of, of dangers. How do we do that? Look at verse 15. He says, rather, so rather than being tossed to and fro by these false teachers, what do we do? Speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head and into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And again, this does happen on Sunday mornings as we listen to the word of God being sang and read and preached. But at the end of the day, this is not everything that the church is. We, we become the church as we are able to build relationships and we're able to sit across the table from each other and speak the truth in love. And for that to happen, we've got to know each other. We've got to have a relationship with one another. We guard ourselves from being shipwrecked by collectively speaking the truth in love to one another, by reminding one another of the gospel and of the word of God, the truth. And so the implications here are really important, I think. First, growth and maturity in the Christian life happens primarily in community. Trying to grow on our own is not the design that God has given us. A com it happens in a community that is being equipped by gifted leaders, a community that looks to God's word as the final authority of truth, a community that is unified in love and has a diverse set of gifting, 
a community that is growing in humility and gentleness and patience and enduring love and is eagerly desiring peace. So listen, there is no such thing as a perfect church, right? Mercy Hill is far from perfect, and Paul recognizes that here. Paul isn't describing a church that is sinless, right? He's describing a church full of sinners who are growing and learning together to be more like Christ by speaking the truth and love to one another. That's the church that he describes, not a perfect church, but a church that is growing, bearing with one another, that's loving one another in spite of our, our mess and our, our sinfulness, and is willing to, to speak the truth and love to each other. Let's pray that God would continue to grow us into that kind of church. Father, thank you so much for your word. Once again, thank you for the gentle spirit that Paul has towards us, individuals and a community that is just broken and in need of more and more of your grace. And I pray that you would help us as a community that, that has been forgiven to forgive one another, that we would be a community that bears with one another well, encourages one another by speaking the truth and love to one another, and that through this community, your spirit would grow us more and more every single day into the image of Christ, that we would fulfill our calling, that we would walk in a manner worthy of the calling that you have given us to be your ambassadors, your witnesses, a holy nation, a royal priesthood sent out to make disciples for your glory and not ours. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.